Hello and welcome to the National Museums Liverpool podcast regarding the present. I'm Jane Garvey. Now, there are six episodes in this series, each one exploring a different theme with voices and experiences from the present and from the past, reflecting just some of the incredible stories in the museum's collections, programmes and communities. And we are spoilt for choice. There are so many stories. There are, after all, four million objects in the museum's collections. There's the Museum of Liverpool, the World Museum, the Maritime Museum, the International Slavery Museum, the Walker Art Gallery, the Lady Lever Art Gallery, and Sudley House. There's much to enjoy and a lot to learn. Earlier episodes have looked at the themes of love, resilience, work, isolation, and movement. This, the final podcast, is devoted to the subject of protest. Now, Liverpool always gets its voice heard. And let's face it, many of us with a bit of Scouse DNA do like the sound of our own voices, but there's nothing wrong with that. It's important that some people are prepared to stick their head above the parapet and challenge authority and keep doing it. But this can come at a price, and some sorts of protest are more dangerous than others. You're about to hear Chantelle Lunt, the founder of the Merseyside Black Lives Matter Alliance. Now, Chantelle, as she tells us, has been going on marches since the anti-austerity protests. But the first march she organised was after the murder of George Floyd in the United States. She tells Ellie Field about the fact that it's both energising and exhausting, but that anything is better than feeling powerless. Here's Ellie. People have been protesting in the UK since the 13th century and possibly even further back than that. But in the last couple of years, protests have been in the news and talked about on social media more than ever. I spoke to Chantelle Lunt, writer, entrepreneur, activist, and founder of Merseyside Black Lives Matter, about her experience of organising and participating in Liverpool protests. Um, So the first protest that I attended, it was when austerity came in and they were proposing massive cuts to services. So that was the first protest I attended maybe 10 years ago. And the first protest I organised was a BLM protest in summer and that was in the wake of the murder of George Floyd. When I protest, I feel quite empowered and... It's quite a strange feeling when you protest. There's an energy. You come together with like-minded people and sometimes when there's issues going on in the world and, you know, you're at home and you're on your phone or you're viewing it through a TV screen, you can feel quite powerless, quite small. But when you go to a protest and when you, you know, you get together with people who feel passionate about the issues and who want change you actually realise how much power you do have as a collective. So I always feel invigorated, empowered, and just really full of energy when I go to a protest. There's, there's not really a feeling quite like it, and it's hard to describe unless you go to a protest. You always feel really elated and just, you feel like you can do anything and you can change the world after you've been to a protest. I think protests have quite a significant role because... There's nothing quite like seeing hundreds of thousands of people take to the street because they feel angry about an issue or because they want an issue to change. And 
historically, if we consider the suffragette movement, the civil rights movement, all of those movements had as part of obviously multi-layers of action, but all of those movements had process at the forefront. And it was the process that were the driver to change because civil unrest, civil disobedience, people being out on the street constantly and consistently showing their anger in a, a visible way. And it's often quite rightful anger, it's quite rightful, you know, negative emotions because of situations of injustice. So protests are often the driver for change. And I don't think many of the big changes we've had, you know, in the 20th and 21st century, the women's right to vote, changes to LGBT law to allow marriage, um, Black civil liberties, those changes would not have happened without people on the street making their voices heard. Black Lives Matter protests have shone a spotlight on racism. And as well as making changes in laws and policies, it has highlighted the need for proper education on the systemic racism that has been in place since the transatlantic slave trade began in the 16th century. Well, if we look at the US, um, the BLM protests over there, a lot of people have called for the, you know, the police to be defunded or dissolved into civilianised roles because there's a clear issue with the police, A, having deadly force, and B, seeming not to know how not to use deadly force against black people. So as a result of some of the BLM protests in America, they've actually civilianised some of the police departments in Los Angeles. So when there's an incident, it's likely that there'll be a peaceful resolution when it involves a black person rather than a black person ending up dead. So by civilianising a lot of the police role, most of the police roles don't actually need armed officers to go out. So that would that change wouldn't have happened without the protest. They weren't even considering it before the protests and now. Since the protests, since kind of the uproar, they've gone, oh, hang on a minute, maybe, you know, maybe we don't need to be shooting black people. Um, and then in the UK, we've had many reviews into racism. We've had a lot of organisations actually looking to make tangible changes. Even in Liverpool, we've had, you know, the Race and Equality Commission. We've had a lot of big organisations prioritise race and actually understand that institutional racism is something that is prevalent, not just in the police force, but in many organisations and want to take action to change that. So literally in the wake of the protests that happened last summer, most organisations, most big, you know, groups have looked at themselves and gone, okay, what do we need to be doing to change to ensure that black people are included and black people are kind of, you know, discriminated against within our organisations or within this setting and quite significant ones, the NHS, after the data came off that Black moms are five times more likely to die in childbirth and leave and leave. Um, I know they've got a prevent team now and they're doing a lot of research around it to address that. Protesting as an act is an exhausting job to do. Naysayers may think it's simply walking in a straight line and chanting a powerful slogan, but the emotional energy you put into a protest can be incredibly draining, especially for those who face oppression and racism daily. I think self-care is very important because, you know, change doesn't happen overnight. It's an ongoing process. And as I've mentioned about the conversations and commissions and meetings that happen on the back of Black Lives Matter, for example, the actions that come out of these meetings and the systems and structures being put in place as a result of them, you won't probably see the benefit for a number of years because it's going to take time. So, 
while it is quite frustrating that things don't happen overnight, a lot of the systemic injustices that we're fighting against and fighting to change have been sort of sewn into society for hundreds of years. So it is going to be a long slog and we are going to continue to see injustices, but it's just as important to kind of highlight them and call them out. But equally, it's important to look after ourselves and to manage self-care because if we acknowledge that there's a long road ahead, then we also need to acknowledge that we can't be fighting on empty and we can't be running on empty. So, you know, you can be completely overwhelmed by watching the news. We're inundated with stories about, you know, how unfair the world is. And I just say, we don't need to see all those stories. We do need to be informed, but we don't need to be inundated. So taking that time away from activism, if you're feeling burnt out, taking that time away to recharge, to do something that's completely not related to what you're passionate about as an activist, that's just as important as being a protest. So, you know, you don't have to be at every protest. You don't have to know about every single person who's been, you know, hurt or facing injustice because you, you'll be overwhelmed if you did. So there's there's no harm in taking time out. There's no harm in looking after yourself because that means that when you do come out and when you do, you know, get back into your activism, you come and from a place of being replenished and being full of energy and rather than kind of burning out because of it. Any event organiser will tell you how stressful it is coordinating an event. So imagine doing it for free in a public space and having to coordinate with the police who could try and shut it down at any moment. Um, in terms of the work that goes into organising the process, it's actually, it's a lot of work. So you kind of have to go about it by thinking of, you know, making sure it's accessible and thinking of your person who has the most needs and going from there. So, you know, is this a point that everybody can get to? Is it somewhere where everyone can see? In terms of COVID, is there enough space for everybody to spread out? Do we have, you know, the right masks, hand gel? It's a bit like organising an event or a party. You know, the people, you think of the people who come to your processes, you get, so you try to preempt what your guests would need. Um, and children it's near the toilet and things like that and then usually if you're doing a process because we've done most of our process during times of COVID there's kind of an obligation to engage with the police to a degree you don't always have to but in times of COVID just because of the restrictions so you have to make sure you're speaking to your police liaison going at it from a health and safety perspective and then arranging your speakers so it's, it's a bit like arranging an event any other event um there's probably a good few weeks at worth of planning going into it and most of the people who organize processes you know it's like waking up on the morning party you're just really anxious like about the weather and what could go wrong so there's a lot of work that goes into it but it's usually worth it once you've done your process from the suffragette movement to the minor strikes from the gay rights movement to black lives matter protests have been a crucial and important factor to creating positive change in social history. Chantelle Lund talking to Ellie Field. Now, in truth, most of us probably lack Chantelle's commitment and organisational ability. It's a lot easier to stage a gentle protest at home, possibly by drinking your favourite brew out of a mug with a good old political slogan on it. Or you may have splashed out recently on some toilet roll featuring the face of a leading American politician. You know the bloke I mean. None of this is actually new. Megan McGurk has been speaking to Jeff Speakman, who's assistant curator of regional archaeology, 
about what was discovered in a dig before the Museum of Liverpool was built. The discoveries link the city to the American War of Independence. Here's Jeff. We didn't know whether we were going to find anything. Uh, it's always a bit potluck, especially in, in, in sort of uh, these riverside and dockside areas. This is Jeff Speakman, archaeologist at Museum of Liverpool, talking about the March 2007 dig at Manchester Dock, part of the World Heritage Site in Liverpool and one of the oldest docks in the Liverpool Dock sequence. It's had some changes in its time. It was originally an open water dock. The tide went out, the water would seep away, and the ships would sink to the bottom. In 1803, the seawall was extended out to the river by about 20 to 30 metres, leaving behind a hole that needed filling in order to recreate the land surface for the quay sides of the dock. In 1807, a lock was added. This created a neat time frame from 1803 to 1807, when any archaeological finds in this area must have been buried. By chance, exactly 200 years later, it was time for a dig. This was what archaeologists call a watching brief. As diggers excavated mass amounts of soil around the lock, Jeff and his team watched on from the sidelines, not knowing what they may see. In the process of watching the machine, we spotted this collection of pottery that appeared on the surface. Um, it transpired to be a tip layer uh, of material that had been thrown into this. Basically, it was a landfill site. Because it was a watching brief rather than a normal excavation, we were very much surrounded by um, very heavy JCBs digging out huge quantities of soil, and the ground level would uh, descend, and we were sort of working at the top of this mountain of soil trying to uh, recover as much as possible of the finds. And so they did. Over three tonnes of pottery. This included a lot of common red-coloured pots from sugar factories, as well as Staffordshire pottery, which, despite its age, is relatively modern-looking, similar to the blue and white china you may find in your nan's cupboard. But amongst the Staffordshire dumps was something that caught Jeff and his team's eye. Amongst the pottery were these stonewares, copies of German vessels, which would have been quite expensive to export to America. So the uh, Staffordshire potteries uh, decided that they would um, try to uh, copy them and produce cheaper copies that the American colonists would have been able to afford to actually buy. But amongst them were these these vessels. Uh, they're made in what we call stoneware, which is a harder pottery than normal. Uh, it's fired to a much higher temperature so that water and liquids can't escape from, from inside the material. There were chamber pots. Chamber pots are vessels that you would have had under your bed uh, and allowed you to go to the toilet during the night uh, rather than having to um, get up and go and find the local privy. Back in the 18th century, with no indoor facilities to speak of, chamber pots were a crucial household item. Luckily, in this case, it was what was on the outside of the pots that was most intriguing. It's decorated in a style where they scratch a design on the outside and then painting blue cobalt colouring onto it. So it's often known as, or well, the equivalent would be scratch blue. Some of the vessels had these armorial uh, uh, arms on the front of the vessels. Uh, and these particular ones had the letters GR with a crown. To have the royal crest on the side was a little bit shocking. Can you imagine that um, these poor 
protesting Americans um, buy a vessel basically so that they can um, go to the toilets representing the king. So I think it shows quite a lot of um, disdain for the royal family and for the, for the king themselves, and also a lot of sort of support for their freedoms and their rights to, to escape um, from the sort of the colonial uh, governance that we, we put under them under for so long. Now, depending how you feel about the royal family, you may find that more or less shocking. But what is even more curious is what the team found next. Alongside these vessels, it was quite surprising that we also find some mugs, also mugs with the royal crest on, George the uh, Third. So I've got in my mind's eye that um, what we're seeing here within the archaeology of on Merseyside it represents a, a major political struggle within the, the new, newly created United States. Um, I always think of the War of Independence as a, as a, a civil war. You had people who were still supporting the British, still supporting the Crown, that they were known as Tories, which is, seems quite an, an appropriate name for current politics. But these Tories were uh, pro-British uh, and were on the side of the British Army fighting the, 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 the colonists who wanted independence. Um, but it seems that even after 30 years after the war, uh, there was still this nascent split between different parts of the American uh, populace. And some people actually wanted mugs to presumably um, salute the king uh, and to, to, to actually have parties where they would uh, toast the king and, and his reputation. At the same time, the compatriots next door would be using the chamber pot for other purposes to, um, yes, to represent the, the, the opposition to his, his rule in some ways. The pottery may show the feelings of Americans during the War of Independence, but by the time this particular batch of pots were produced, some 30 years after independence was declared in the US in 1776, examples found in America suggest this type of pottery had stopped being produced. It had gone out of fashion, explaining why, after sitting in warehouses in Liverpool, while its American market dwindled, it was dumped. But what of today? Did items like these go out of fashion for good? Or was it, in fact, the complete opposite? I think that that, that sort of sign-up protest just was sort of born at this time, uh, and, and the pottery actually represented a lot of the, the stories and the feelings that um, uh, were around during the sort of the latter part of the 18th century and in, into the 19th. If you think of, um, uh, of, of pottery and ceramics and, and, and goods you can buy today representing two sides of a political divide, I'm sure there are plenty of people uh, after the Brexit vote who would buy mugs with European flags on, but also many British who would buy mugs with the Union flag on to, to actually represent that divide. Uh, I've heard that uh, there was blue paper with Donald Trump's face on it, so that the people who were opposed to him actually bought that toilet paper uh, to do, I suppose, in a very similar way, represent what, what they would have done in the past with the chamber pots. You may not change the world by using Donald Trump toilet paper, but maybe these small acts of personal protest give us a sense of control in a chaotic world. Just as we badge ourselves up to support our favourite band or football team, we do the same for political views. 
these days more likely changing our profile picture to signify where we stand. I asked Jeff what it's like to see we weren't that different 200 years ago. I think what it tells us uh, about how we view things is, is that quite often we don't learn from history or, or that we reproduce the same sort of approaches to, to uh, or responses to um, histor- uh, historical and modern political events. Uh, it represents, I think, the the need to reinforce your own ideas to, to, to be able to um, put on show where you stand. For me, in a personal viewpoint, um, I find it very difficult to put my views on show uh, in case I get attacked for those views. So for me, it's a very personal thing. But I think you can, by work, by buying these objects, by wearing T-shirts that represent your views, you can actually sort of at least express for yourself your, your uh, sort of viewpoints on certain um, political topics or, or, or protests that, uh, that happen in life nowadays. It seems that protest is not just political, but deeply personal too. Whether you're on the front line galvanising critical support, or you're wanted by the key ring, how you express or don't express your views comes down to the individual. One thing you can be sure of in this uncertain world, if there is an unpopular political figure, someone, somewhere, will be selling a toilet product with their face on it. And it doesn't look like that's such a change for a long while yet. And that was Jeff Speakman talking to Megan McGurk. It's now almost 40 years since the Toxteth riots meant Liverpool 8 made national and international headlines. But if that's all you know about the area, then it's not enough. Throughout the 1980s, people there were enthusiastic supporters of the anti-apartheid movement, staging demos, raising awareness and even sending the imprisoned Nelson Mandela a birthday card every year. Their efforts did not go unnoticed. Here's Daniel O'Connor. People from Liverpool know what L8 means. It might just seem like the postcode for the Toxteth district of the city, but it's much more than that. L8 is a community. And it's a community that is proud of its role in activism and protest. The Toxteth riots of 1981, 40 years ago this year, may be the most renowned uprising outside of Liverpool, but the reasons for that, according to the Scarman report, acknowledged the racial disadvantage that is a fact of British life and concluded that complex political, social and economic factors created a disposition towards violent protest. The fact is, this violence was rare. Throughout the remainder of the 1980s, the people of Liverpool 8 didn't just protest about the injustices facing themselves, but of people across the globe, in particular for those in South Africa. The people of L8 were tireless in their support of the anti-apartheid struggle. And to mark this work, the Museum of Liverpool has a display representing the community's role in the movement and the fight to free Nelson Mandela. Part of that display features voices of the people of L8 that were at the forefront of the fight, including Linda Freeman, speaking here about the links between Liverpool 8 and the people of South Africa. The anti-apartheid movement um, was initially organised through Paul Adams and my ex-husband, Jimmy Patterson, the two of them were accidental. This is Linda Freeman, LA campaigner and founding member of Liverpool Black Sisters, speaking in an interview with historian Lawrence Westcroft as part of the Community Heritage Project, 
which now features in a display at the Museum of Liverpool. And the role we played, uh, we, there was the Merseyside anti-apartheid movement, but then we set up the Liverpool Ace anti-apartheid movement. And it was every week we'd go and we'd sort of, it was like we'd update each other on what was going on in South Africa and how we could support that struggle. So it was very much that. And there was also people, black people coming from South Africa and they'd come as our guest speakers. And there was always a march. Nearly every month I thought we marched. Liverpool has a long history of supporting the struggle against apartheid in South Africa, most notably through the city's students and trade union movement. By 1960, Liverpool City Council had announced a boycott of South African goods, followed by student protest campaigns and Liverpool dock workers refusing to handle South African imports. It wasn't just South African goods that were targeted by the protesters. It was anybody or any organisation with links to the apartheid regime. Liverpool University had been investing in South Africa and its Chancellor at the time, Lord Salisbury, was a known supporter of apartheid. In 1970, students, including the Channel 4 newsreader John Snow, occupied the university's Senate House. The demonstrations were led by Pete Cresswell. The issues of Lord Salisbury, who we're obviously aware of, I don't think until we researched and we're quite aware of how deeply involved he and his family were in, um, uh, in, in Southern Africa and repression in Southern Africa. And also uh, when we found that the university had investments in South Africa, which they were you know, totally unapologetic about. Which, uh, even then was shocking and yeah that that drew in a, a lot of students who weren't necessarily a political who could see the the immorality uh, of that by the 1980s liverpool eight anti-apartheid marches were becoming ever more regular to some it may seem something of a folly to protest about a government nearly six thousand miles away after all what could a group of protesters in liverpool hope to achieve through peaceful demonstration alone the lunchtime, sometimes you shut the office down and we'd all go to the quick save and pick. Um, you know, by South Africa, go, go up places, give out leaflets. Maria O'Reilly was the Senior Merseyside Community Relations Officer for Commission for Racial Equality and Coordinator of the Liverpool 8 Law Centre. And we blocked the road for the short of six. We had a march. And then when we got to the end of Parliament Street, we decided on the junction of where the bank was, we blocked the road because marching didn't seem to be having any effect. So we blocked the um, Parliament Street and Catherine Street and all of those caused a big disruption for about an hour um, to try and, you know, raise the, the anti. The Sharpville Six were a group of South African anti-apartheid protesters that were convicted of the murder of the deputy mayor of Sharpville. They were sentenced to death in 1985, despite none of the six young South Africans being found by the court to have caused the actual death of the councillor. They were charged because of a common purpose with the actual perpetrators. Because of the demonstrations like the one in L8 across the globe, the issue came to the attention of the UN Security Council, which stated that the convictions were a crime against humanity. The international pressure on the Pretoria regime forced President Botha to commute the death sentences to 18 to 25 years in prison. And after the fall of apartheid, all six 
were eventually released from prison some seven years after their wrongful conviction. The boycott of Barclays Bank, the demonstrations in support of the Sharpeville Six, the fun runs organised to raise money for the anti-apartheid political party, the ANC, meant that Liverpool 8 had come to the attention of one very notable South African. Here's Linda Freeman again. Nelson Mandela acknowledged Liverpool 8. And for us, that was like amazing. That was just amazing that Nelson Mandela could mention all of us. And we used to send him birthday cards. There was always a big card like that. And everyone who went into the law centre signed the card for Nelson Mandela. And off it went every time it was his birthday. He always got a card from Liverpool 8. And that would bring just tears to our eyes. Nelson Mandela remains an important role model to the black community in Toxteth. The Liverpool 8 against apartheid display in the Museum of Liverpool, also highlights the work of our community partners, Mandela 8. Mandela 8 has the vision, with the blessing of Mr Mandela's family, for a permanent artwork that functions as a performance, conversation and contemplation place in Toxteth's Prince's Park that celebrates the achievements of Nelson Mandela. Mandela's impact on Liverpool 8 has also been recognised in a recent completion of improvements to the boulevard on Prince's Avenue as well as information marking the long history of activism within the LA community. The improvements include famous quotes by Nelson Mandela inscribed into stonework. One such quote reads, When people are determined, they can overcome everything. That was Daniel O'Connor, and you also heard the voices of Pete Cresswell, Linda Freeman and Maria O'Reilly. And there's a lot more about the Liverpool 8 against apartheid movement in the Museum of Liverpool. And that brings us to the end of this podcast series. I really hope you've enjoyed it, and I hope it's got you thinking. We've had everything, really, the local, the international, the apparently trivial, and the incredibly significant. Famous names and so-called ordinary people doing extraordinary things and living through extraordinary times. And I hope we've drawn attention, too, to the individuals trying to make the world a better place for all of us. If you missed any episodes, go to Liverpool Museums, .org.uk forward slash podcast. And thank you very much for listening. You have been listening to a podcast by National Museums of Liverpool, hosted by Jane Garvey, with stories by Ellie Field, Megan McGurk, and me, Daniel O'Connor. This episode will actually be released after I've left the organisation. But it's been a real privilege to be able to tell the stories in a way that does them justice while the museums themselves are closed. Despite the fact that I'll be ploughing my trade elsewhere, I'm going to enjoy the collections even more now they're not a busman's holiday. And the best way to do that is to become a member. Visit liverpoolmuseums.org.uk forward slash membership for more. I'd like to thank everyone involved in bringing this podcast to life. It's been a labour of love, and I will miss putting it together. Thanks to the curators and the contributors for their enormous help. Thanks for our beautiful artwork, by Safa Khan. Thanks to Big Giant Circles for this ace music. And a special thanks to Jane Garvey for presenting and Sam August from Onomatopoeia Approach Production. Both made my job a heck of a lot easier. And finally, thanks to you for listening. Please tell your friends about this podcast if you've enjoyed it. And if not, how about using the Contact Us page on the website to send us some suggestions? After all, it won't be coming to me. 